To be yourself in a world that is trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. Ralph Waldo Emerson. And that will be our author for August. Thank you guys for tuning back into the Only You podcast. I've seen the audience grow. I've seen the audience jump. I've heard them speak. I am here. I am your host, Lo Jackson. I created this podcast, and I'm here to see it through. This is our second season. It's been a joy. It's been a pleasure getting to know some of you. And it's a pleasure that some of you have actually gotten to know me. And... It is World Cancer Support Month here at the Only You Podcast, so if you know anybody that's gone through the struggle of having cancer, abnormal cell growth that's caused pain, sorrow, discomfort, and death even, please, you can reach out to the World Cancer Research Fund and donate money. They actually have a wonderful website, and it's a .org, and those are usually the only sites I trust to donate money to. Ralph Waldo Emerson was born in Massachusetts on May 25, 1803. He was the son to Ruth Haskins and Reverend William Emerson, a Unitarian minister. He was named after his mother's brother Ralph and his father's great mother Rebecca Waldo, in which he actually went by Waldo his whole life, everybody. Ralph Waldo was the second of five sons who survived into adulthood. The others were William, Edward, Robert, Buckley, and Charles. Three other children, Phoebe, John, Clark, and Mary Carolyn, died in childhood. Emerson was entirely of English ancestry. His family had been in New England since the early colonial period. Emerson's father died from stomach cancer on May 12, 1811, less than two weeks before Emerson's eighth birthday. Emerson was raised by his mother with the help of the other women in the family. His aunt, Mary Moody Emerson, in particular, had a profound effect on him. She lived with the family on and off, maintained a constant correspondence with Emerson until her death in 1863. Emerson's formal schooling began at the Boston Latin School in 1812 when he was nine. In October 1817, at the age of 14, Emerson went to Harvard College and was appointed freshman messenger for the president requiring Emerson to fetch delinquent students and send messages to faculty. Midway through his junior year, Emerson began keeping a list of books he had read and started a journal in a series of notebooks that would be called The Wide World. He took outside jobs to cover his school expenses, including as a waiter for the junior commons and as a occasional teacher working with his uncle Samuel and Aunt Sarah Ripley in Waltham, Massachusetts. By his senior year, Emerson decided to go by his middle name, Waldo. Ain't that kind of cool? What up, Waldo? You guys remember those books in school? Where's Waldo? I'm sure that had something to do with the author of that book. Emerson served as class poet. As was custom, he was presented an original poem on Harvard's class day a month before his official graduation on August 29, 1821, when he was 18. He did not stand out as a student and graduated in the exact middle of his class of 59 people. In the early 1820s, Emerson was a teacher at a school for young ladies, which was run by his brother William. He returned next two years, living in a cabin in the Canterbury section of Roxbury, Massachusetts, where he wrote and studied nature. 
In his honor, this area is now called Schoolmaster Hill and Boston's Franklin Park. And thank you guys again for tuning in to the Only You podcast. I decided to do Ralph Waldo Emerson as our wonderful author this month. Waldo actually lived in a time when he got to know John Brown, an abolitionist who believed that insurrection and violence were the only way to end slavery. And John Brown actually became a hero to many abolitionists, including Emerson and Thoreau, which it was believed that Emerson and Thoreau had like a love triangle or they maybe they were kind of like, they had like a lover's relationship kind of because they were best friends. Waldo was also alive and knew personally Horace Mann, which I've talked about Horace Mann in other podcasts that I've done. And Horace Mann was considered the father of education in America. He was a leading public education reformer, actually, and a teacher, abolitionist, who also was the brother-in-law to Nathaniel Hawthorne. Can you believe that? Ralph Waldo Emerson actually knew Nathaniel Hawthorne. And, you know, because Nathaniel Hawthorne was a writer uh, of pretty, like, many literary classics. Obviously, The Scarlet Letter, House of Seven Gables. While um, he wasn't a transcendentalist, though, and Emerson was the father of transcendentalism. And other people that was alive during Waldo's time was John Muir, which John Muir was uh, one of the most famous influential naturalist and conservationist whom Emerson met in California in 1871. Muir did not get to Concord actually until June of 1893. And it was unfortunately 11 years after Emerson had died. When he visited, he did lay flowers on Emerson's grave and uh, dined with Edward Waldo Emerson the Emerson Muir meeting in California was actually momentous for Muir, who wrote of Emerson that he was the most serene, majestic, sequoia like soul I have ever met. His smile was as sweet and calm as morning light on mountains. There was a wonderful charm in his presence, his smile, serene eye. His voice, his manner were all sensed at once by everybody. I felt here was a man I had been seeking, the Sierra. I was sure wanted to see him, and he must not go before gathering them an interview. A tremendous sincerity was he. He was a sincere as the trees, his eyes the, as the sun. Kind of interesting, and that's what David Muir wrote about Waldo. So you know, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson, he was also tied to last month's author because she was a huge abolitionist at the time, and they knew each other as well, you know. So I find that kind of cool. Harriet Beecher Stowe and Ralph Waldo Emerson knew each other. And Ralph Waldo Emerson's best friend was Henry David Thoreau, in which Henry David Thoreau was a writer, a surveyor. He was a transcendentalist, and he followed Emerson close because he was his closest friend. He was a member of the Transcendental Club and contributed to the dial uh, regularly. Thoreau lived with the Emersons like 
uh, at different times in his life. And he actually built a cabin on Emerson's land at Walden Pond. He stayed at Walden for two years, two months, and two days. His book, Walden, his account of the experience is an American classic. So I find that to be cool. That's why I had to include that in this podcast because Ralph Waldo Emerson is a literary genius and an American icon in the writing world, you know. And then another famous person that was a visitor of Ralph Waldo Emerson was Walt Whitman. And Walt Whitman was an American poet. He was an essayist. He um, first came in contact with uh, Walt Whitman when Whitman heard him deliver a lecture in New York City, Nature and the Power of the Poet. Whitman self-published Leaves of Grass and sent a copy to Emerson anonymously. Emerson sent the now-famous letter to Whitman, the most extraordinary piece of wit and wisdom that America has yet contributed. Also in the letter, the often quoted line, I greet you at the beginning of a great career. Whitman called Emerson master. The greatest glory in living lies not in never falling, but in rising every single time we fall. You know, not a lot of us know what our purpose is here. We're on a journey that we're living abstractly. You know, any person that has ever succeeded at something did that something for more than 30 to 40 days. It's like this. Once you reach doing something at six days, the neuroplasticity in your brain changes. Once you hit 21 days, your mind has adapted to the change. Once you hit 66 days, you have then conformed to a new habit, a new theory, a new way of living, and you are on your life's destined purpose. And everybody needs to know that they are living a life worth living. I believe that Ralph Waldo Emerson lived a life he knew was worth living because he didn't spend all of his time unhappy and miserable and trying to figure out all the different things in life. If you want to figure out a lot of different things in life, start reading laws. Gilbert's Law. Look, uh, you know, Gilbert's Law is nobody tells you what to do when you're at work. I found that one to be a very interesting, meaningful statement. But then there's Pareto's Law. And Pareto's Law can be summarized as the following. 80% of outputs result from 20% of the inputs. Alternative ways to phrase this, depending on the context, include 80% of the consequences flow from 20% of the causes. 80% of the results come from 20% of the effort and time. 80% of company profits come from 20% of the products and customers. 80% of all stock market gains are realized by 20% of the investors and 20% of an individual portfolio. The list 
is infinitely long and diverse, and the ratio is often skewed even more severely, 90-10, 95-5, 99-1 are not uncommon, but the minimum ratio to seek is 80-20. And, you know, like when I came across Pareto's work um, one late evening, it really struck me hard. It hit a chord so deep inside my soul I started to think about this in my head of like, whoa, which 20% of sources are causing me 80% of my problems and unhappiness? You know, which 20% of sources are resulting in 80% of my desired outcomes and happiness? You know, for an entire day, I put aside everything seemingly urgent and did the most intense truth analysis possible you know applying these questions to everything from my friends to customers and advertising to rela um, relationships don't you know expect to find you're doing everything right the truth often does hurt and, and the goal is to find your in a, uh, inefficiencies in order to eliminate them and to find your strengths so that you can multiply them. And, and in the 24 hours that followed, I made several simple but emotionally difficult decisions that literally changed my life forever and enabled the lifestyle I now enjoy. And I'm trying to live the best life I know how to live. You know, out of more than 120 wholesale customers, a mere five were bringing in 95% revenue. I was spending 98% of my time chasing the remainder as an affirmation, you know, just to get five ordered regular regulars in the door. And sometimes, you know, you get lost in business when things are going so fast that you're not paying attention to how much money is going out the door and how much overhead. You know, when I was running my business out in Phoenix, I was really hitting numbers I'd never expected. I just didn't know that I had gotten into a field that was a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And when somebody new came about, they were more likely to be that much more attentive than somebody that had been there for 20 years because they had a solid customer base of people that just relied on them to always be there for them. And that's not always the way business works in life. And sometimes you got to get back on track. And when you're going through certain situations and you don't know a way out, sometimes you got to dig deep and find your purpose and or, or write things down. And, and I'm serious about this. You're never going to manifest where you are if you don't put pen to paper, you know, be present. You know, it's a gift. Start right where you are. Don't worry about the future. That's anxiety. And the past is just depression. The present is a gift. Be here and now and apparent in the situations that you're in and learn that there are 20, you know, 20% of your inputs are causing 80% of your discomfort. So, you need to go to the drawing board and put down pen to paper and realize those little situations that are causing you grief, pain, and sorrow in your journey. You only have 30-some thousand days to live. You know, you're not an accident. You're here for a reason. God gave you everything you need. And, you know, like he said, I am your creator. You were in my care even before you were born. 
So your purpose is already like chosen for you. And the man without a purpose is like a ship without a rudder, a waif, a nothing, a no man. And that was Thomas Carlyle. So if you ain't going to find your purpose, look at Ralph Waldo Emerson, the author of The Month. You know, we're going to be doing um, Life of Emerson today. It's going to be a great read because he was an intelligent, uh, literate human being. And if you don't know anything about illiterate behaviors, that stuff's passed on to your grandkids, your great-grandkids. And sometimes finding your purpose in life is tarnished by people not realizing that there are certain attributes of education that everybody needs. It's a trough of life. And when you drink from the education trough, and I'm not saying that you have to get into a generalized school to be educated because a lot of people are street smart and they become very successful. Most rich people become rich because they were poor, poor, poor at one point and realized that there was more to life than the way that they were taught to live and that the way they were taught to live were the confines of someone's mind that were actually restricted by things that were going on that they had no idea about but no one led them and guided them and and showed them a way out and true leadership it takes that and when you know your purpose you can get to that leadership level and thank you again uh, so much for listening to me and thank you so much for giving me five stars on spotify i do appreciate that even if it's one i love it i'm thankful it means a lot to me to know that somebody's involved in my podcast and I'm involved in your life and you listen to me as though I'm somebody worth listening to. I appreciate that because if you had a podcast, I would follow you. If you're hearing my commercials, know that I do care and I would listen. Just tell me, hey, hit me up and say, follow me. I will because nobody's going to know you have a problem until you raise your flag and let them know, hey, there's a problem. And that goes with anything, good or bad. Nobody, nothing's considered a problem until someone points out the problem or makes up the problem. Think about that one. Emerson. Thank you so much for tuning in. And here goes. As a schoolboy, he was quiet and retiring, reading a great deal, but not paying much attention to his lessons. He entered Harvard at the early age of 14, but never attended a high rank there, although he took a prize for an essay on Socrates and was made class poet after several others had declined. Next to his reserve and the faultless propriety of his conduct, his contemporaries at college seemed most impressed by the great maturity of his mind. Emerson appears never to have been really a boy. He was always serene and thoughtful, impressing all who knew him with that spirituality which was his most distinguishing characteristic. After graduating from college, he taught school for a time and then entered the Harvard Divinity School under Dr. Channing. The great Unitarian preacher, although he was not strong enough to attend all the lectures of the Divinity Course, the college authorities deemed the name Emerson sufficient passport to the ministry. He was accordingly approbable to preach 
the Middlesex Association of Minister on October 10th, 1826. As a preacher, Emerson was interesting, though not particularly original. His talent seems to have been in giving new meaning to the old truths of religion. One of his hearers has said this, and looking back on his preaching, I find he has impressed truths of which I always ascended in such a manner as to make them appear new, like a clearer revelation. Although his sermons were always couched in scriptural language, they were touched with the light of that genius which avoids the conventional and commonplace. In his other pastoral duties, Emerson was not quite so successful. It is characteristic of his deep humanity and his dislike for all fuss and commonplace that he appeared to least advantage at a funeral a connoisseur in such manners. An old sexton once remarked that on such occasions he did not appear to ease at all. To tell the truth, in my opinion, that young man was not born to be a minister. Emerson did not long remain a minister. In 1832, he preached a sermon in which he announced certain views in regard to the communion service, which were disapproved by a large part of his congregation. He found it impossible to continue preaching, and with the most friendly feelings on both sides, he parted from his congregation. A few months later, around 1833, he went to Europe for a short year of travel. Could you imagine that? He probably just changed his life. He changed his neuroplasticity, his whole way of thinking. He took himself out of the environment that he was in and made his mind grow. He forced it to grow. That's what happens when you um, force yourself to leave and change. While abroad, he visited Walter Savage Lander, Coleridge, and Wadsworth, and Thomas Carlyle. This visit to Carlisle was to both men a most interesting experience. They parted feeling that they had much intellectually in common. This belief fostered a sympathy which by the time they had discovered how different they really were had grown so strong a habit that they always kept up their intimacy. This year of travel opened up Emerson's eyes to many things of which he had previously been ignorant. He had profited by detachment from the concerns of a limited community and an isolated church. After his return, he began to find his true field of activity in this lecture hall and delivered a number of addresses in Boston and its vicinities. While thus coming before the open public on the lecture platform, he was all the time preparing the treatiest which was to embody all the quintessential elements of his philosophical doctrine. This was the essay nature which was published in 1836. By its conception of external nature as an incarnation of the divine mind it struck the fundamental principle of Emerson's religious belief. The essay had very small circulation at first, 
though later it became widely known. And in the winter of 1836, Emerson followed up his discourse on nature by a course of 12 lectures on the philosophy of history, a considerable portion of which eventually became embodied in his essays. The next year, in 1837, this was the year of the delivery of the man thinking, or of American scholar addresses before the Phi Beta Kappa Society at Cambridge. The society composed of the first 25 men in each class graduating from college has annual meetings which have called forth the best efforts of many distinguished scholars and thinkers. Emerson's address was listened to with most profound interest. It declared a sort of intellectual independence for America. Henceforth, he were to be emancipated from clogging foreign influences and a national lecture was to expand under the fostering care of the Republic. These two discourses, nature and the American scholar, strike the keynote of Emerson's philosophical, poetical, and moral teachings. In fact, he had, as every great teacher has, only a limited number of principles and theories to teach. These principles of life can all be enumerated in 20 words. Self-reliance, culture, intellectual, and moral independence. The divinity of nature and man. The necessity of labor and high ideals. Emerson spent the latter part of his life lecturing and in literary work. His son, Dr. Edward Emerson, gave an interesting account of how these lectures were constructed. And remember, earlier in the podcast, I told you that his son and uh, Mr. Muir had met, but too bad Mr. Muir was 11 years late because his father had already passed away, but he had met with the son. The thoughts thus received and garnered his journals were indexed and a great many of them appeared in his published works. They were religiously set down just as they came, in no order except chronological, but later they were grouped, enlarged, or pruned, illustrated, worked into a lecture or discourse, and after having in this capacity undergone repeated testing and rearranging, were finally carefully sifted and more rigidly pruned and were printed as essays. Besides his essays and lectures, Emerson left some poetry in which is embodied those thoughts which were to him too deep for prose expression. Oliver Wendell Holmes, in speaking of this essay, Emerson wrote occasionally in verse from his school days until he had reached the age which used to be known as the Grand Climacteric 63. His poems are not and hardly can become popular. They are not meant to be liked by the many, but to be dearly loved and cherished by the few. His occasional lawlessness 
and technical construction, his somewhat fantastic expressions, his enigmatic obscurities hardly distract from the pleasant surprise his verses so often bring with them. The poetic license which we allow in the verse of Emerson is more than excused by the noble spirit which makes us forget its occasional blemishes, sometimes to be pleased with them as characteristic of the writer. Emerson was always a striking figure in the intellectual life of America. His discourses were above all things inspiring. Through them, many were induced to strive for a higher self-culture. His influence can be discerned in all the literary movements of the time. He was the central figure of the so-called Transcendental School, which was prominent 50 years ago, although he always rather held aloof from the enthusiastic participation in the movement. Emerson lived a quiet life in Concord, Massachusetts. He was a first-rate neighbor and one who always kept his fences up. He traveled extensively on his lecturing tours, even going as far as England. In English traits, he has recorded his impressions of what he saw of English life and manners. Oliver Wendell Holmes has described him in this wise way. His personal appearance was that of the typical New England of college-breed ancestry. Tall, spar, slender, with sloping shoulders, slightly stooping. In his later years, with light hair and eyes, the scholar's complexion, the prominent, somewhat arched nose, which belongs to many of the New England subspecies, thin lips, suggestive, suggestive of delicacy, but having nothing like primness. Still, less of the rigidity, which is often noticeable in this generation succeeding next to that of the men and their shirt sleeves, he would have been noticed anywhere as one evidently a scholarly thinker, astray from the alcove or the study, which were his natural habits. His voice was very sweet and penetrating, without any loudness or mark of effort. His enunciation was beautifully clear, but he often hesitated, as if waiting for the right word to present itself. His manner was very quiet, his smile was pleasant, but he did not like explosive laughter any better than Hawthorne did. And they knew each other. Nathaniel Hawthorne and Ralph Waldo Emerson were friends. None who met him can fall to recall that serene and kind presence in which there was mingled a certain spiritual remoteness with the most benignant human welcome 
to all who were privileged to enjoy his companionship. Emerson died on April 27, 1882, after a few days illness from pneumonia. Dr. Gernert, in his excellent biography, says, seldom had the reaper whose name in death gathered such illustrious harvest as between December 1880 and April 1882. And this month, in this George Eliot passed away, in the first month of this George Eliot passed away, and then soon February, Carlisle followed. In April, Lord Beaconsfield died, deplorable by party, nor unregretted by his country. In February of the following year, Longfellow was carried to the tomb, and in April, Rose City was laid to rest by the sea and the pavement of Westminster Abbey was disturbed to receive the dust of Darwin. And now Emerson laid down in death beside the painter of man and the searcher of nature, the English oriental statesman, the poet of the plain man, and the poet of the artist, and the prophet whose name is Westminster Abbey was disturbed to receive the dust of Darwin. And now Emerson laid down in death beside the painter of man and the searcher of nature, the English oriental statesman, the poet of the plain man and the poet of the artist, and the prophet whose name is indissolubly linked with his own. All these men pass into eternity laden with spoils of time, but of none of them could it be said as of Emerson that was shining intellectual glory and the most potent intellectual force of a continent had departed along with him. Critical opinions of Emerson and his writings. After a review of the poetical works of Emerson, the English critic draws his conclusions as follows. I do not then place Emerson among the great poets. But I go farther and say that I do not place him among the great writers, the great men of letters, who are the great men of letters. They are men like Ciro, Plato, Bacon, Pascal, Swift, Voltaire, writers with, in the first place, a genius and instinct for style. Brilliant and powerful passenger passages in a man's writings do not prove his passions of it. Emerson has passages of noble and pathetic eloquence. He has passages of shrewd and feliciousness. Wit with his crisp epigram. He has passages of exquisitely touched observation of nature, yet he is not a great writer. 
Carlisle formulates perfectly the, diff the defects of his friend's poetic and literary productions when he says, for me, it is too ethereal, speculative, to be theoretical. I have all things considered, condensed themselves, take shape and body if they are to have my sympathy. Not with the uh, Milton's and Gray's, not with the Plato's or the Spinoza's, not with the Swift's or the Valtars, not with the Montans and Addison's. Can we rank Emerson? No man could see this clearer than himself. Alas, my friend, he writes in reply to Carlyle, who had exhorted him to creative work. Alas, my friend, I can do no such gay thing as you say. I do not belong to the poets, but only to a low department of literature. The reports suburban men, he depreciated his friend's praise, praise generous to a fault. He calls it praise generous to the shaming of me, cold, fastidious, and betting person that I am. After all, this unfavorable criticism Arnold begins to praise, quoting passages from the essays, he adds, This is tonic indeed, and let no one object that it is too general that more practical positive direction is what we want. Yes, truly his insight is admirable. His truth is precious, yet the secret of his effect is not even in these. It is his temper. It is in the hopeful, serene beauty, temper, wherewith these and Emerson are indissolubly united in which they work and have their being. One can scarcely overrate the importance of holding fast to the happiness and hope it gives to Emerson's work an invaluable virtue as Wadworth's poetry is, in my judgment, the most important done in verse in our language during the present century. So Emerson's essays are, I think, the most important work done in prose. But by his conviction that in the life of the spirit is happiness and by the hope that this life of the spirit will come more and more to be sanely understood and to prevail and to work for happiness by his conviction and hope Emerson was great and he will surely prove in the end to have his right in them. You cannot prize him too much nor heed him too diligently. And thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast. Hopefully you're enjoying this Henry Wadsworth Longfellow read The Life of Emerson I really found this to be a great author and a great choice for August I hope each and every individual out there is enjoying this podcast thank you again for your five star reviews I do appreciate each individual out there I am grateful this podcast would not be possible without all of you following me sharing me going to Spotify, giving me a 10-star review. I appreciate those 10 stars. <laughs>
hopefully somebody remembers to go over there. Um, here's a great part of this book I wanted to share with you that I found too. I skipped a little bit ahead, but here it goes. It, go, it goes like this, you guys. <laughs> he who knows that power is inborn, that he is weak because he has looked for good out of him and elsewhere, and so perceiving throws himself unhesitatingly on his thought, instantly writes himself, stands in the erect position, commands his limbs, works miracles, just as a man who stands on his feet is stronger than a man who stands on his head. So use all that is called fortune. Most men gamble with her and gain all and lose all as her wheel rolls. But do thou leave as unlawful these winnings and deal with cause and effect the chancellor of God. In the will work and acquire, and thou hast chained the wheel of chance and shalt sit hereafter out of fear from her rotations, a political victory, a rise of rents, the recovery of your sick, or the return of your absent friend, or some other favorable event raises your spirits, and you think good days are preparing for you. Do not believe it. Nothing can bring you peace but yourself. Nothing can bring you peace but the triumph of principles. And I have spoke to you guys about principles in other podcasts too. A lot of my books deal with principles. So you got to know that if you're having like financial troubles or something, you got to find principles that work for you and your family or your money situation. If you're having love issues, you got to set up principles that get you to the person you're supposed to be with. You know, principles are things that you live your life by that help you gain something that you're trying to achieve or that will make you be an all-around better person, I believe. And thank you guys for listening, and thank you for sharing me and following me again. Hopefully you're enjoying this. I'm really enjoying this. This has been a great read. And the next part of this book is called Friendship. We have a great deal more kindness than is ever spoken, bearing all the selfishness that chills like east winds the world, the whole human family is bathed with an element of love like a fine ether. How many persons we meet in houses whom we scarcely speak to, whom yet we honor, and who honor us? How many we see in the street or sit within church whom, though silently we warmly rejoice to be with, read the language of these wandering eye beams the heart knoweth the effect of the indulgence of this human affection is a certain cordial acceleration in poetry and in common speech the emotions of benevolence and complacency which are felt toward others are likened to the material effects of fire so swift or much more swift, more active, more cheering are these fine inward irradiations from the highest degree of passion, love, 
to the lowest degree of goodwill. They make the sweetness of life. Our intellectual and active powers increase our affection. The scholar sits down to write, and all his years of meditation do not furnish him with one good thought or happy expression. But it is not necessary to write a letter to a friend, and forthwith troops of gentle thoughts invest themselves on every hand with chosen words. See in any house where virtue and self-respect abide, and palpitation which the approach of a stranger causes, a commanded stranger is expected and announced, and an uneasiness between pleasure and pain invades all the hearts of a household. His arrival almost brings fear to the good hearts that would welcome him. The house is dusted, all the things fly into their place, the old coats in exchange for the new, and they must get up a dinner, if they can, of a commended stranger, only the good report is told by others, only the good and new is heard by us. He stands to us for humanity. He is what we wish. We ask how we should stand related in conversation and action with such a man and are uneasy with fear, false evidence appearing real. The same idea exalts conversation with him. We talk better than we are won't. We have the nimblest fancy, a richer memory, and our dumb devil has taken leave for the time. For long hours we can continue in series of sincere, graceful, rich communications drawn from the oldest, secretest experience so that they who sit by of our own kinfolk and acquaintance shall feel a lively surprise at our unusual powers, but as soon as the stranger begins to intrude his partialities, his definitions, his defects into the conversation, it is all over. He has heard the first and the last and best he will ever hear from us. He is no stranger now. Vulgarity, ignorance, misappropriation are old acquaintances. Now, when he comes, he may get the older, the dress, and the dinner, but the throbbing of the heart and the communications of the soul, no more. What is so pleasant as these jets of affection which relume a young world for me again? What is so delicious as a just and firm encounter of two and a thought and a feeling? How beautiful on their approach of this beating heart, the steps, forms of gifted and the true. The moment we indulge our affections, the earth is metamorphosed. There is no winter and no night. All tragedies, all unkindness vanish. All duties, even nothing fills preceding eternity for the forms all radiant of beloved persons. Let the soul be assured that somewhere in the universe it shall rejoin its friend, and it would be content and cheerful alone for a thousand years. Again, thank you, audience members, for following me. Thank you for sharing me, and thank you for giving me five stars over there on Spotify. 
so grateful. And I had told you earlier about the 80-20. What is the 20% of things in your life, the inputs that are causing 80% of your dysfunctional outputs? Or, you know, you got to put pen to paper to manifest where you are. Um, start living by a system, not by default. And it's hard to do. It's hard to be clear-cut with goals and manifest where you are. It makes sense. But you have to be present because it's a gift. You know, if you're feeling stuck or unsure, change your environment. Um, if your relationship feels stagnant, you know what? Have a mental health three-day weekend. Go camping. It don't cost anything to go be by yourself. If it has to be four days, let it be four days out there in the wilderness. You could actually change your life, your neuroplasticity, your relationships, the love, the kindness, the energy that you have to give the world could be actually being suppressed by just terrible environments. And a lot of people don't realize their environment is half of the reason why they act and do the things they do. And remember this, to be yourself in a world that is trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. Ralph Waldo Emerson. And again, remember, August is World Cancer Support Month. You can donate money at the WCRF.org, the World Cancer Research Fund. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for following me. And thank you for caring about the things that I care about. And thank you for being some cool, awesome people that are great spectators out there in the world. Thank you for being wonderful citizens in your community. Thank you for stepping up and helping somebody that's in need. And thank you again for just being great people and well-developed. And thank you for sharing me. And thank you for loving yourself and caring about yourself enough to try to do something different and not care what everybody thinks and be out of the norm, you know, because life is about finding what your purpose is, you know, find what your dharma is, find your varna, you find your dharma, and then, like in Sanskrit writings, your whole world or your sava becomes a complete circle, and they call that circle the circle of life. This is your boy, Lo Jackson. This is the Only You Podcast. This is our second season. Again, you guys are great. I am on your side. If you, if you need me, I got your six. Just say it, and I'll be there. Until next time.